0: They're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose Interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today.
1: Maui Nui is on a mission to help balance axis steer populations for the good of our environment, communities, and food systems. On the island of Maui. They've shared over 126,000 pounds of nutrient dense protein with the Maui community. Secure your spot now, become a snack subscriber and join in helping to build more resilient food and ecosystems on Maui. Visit Maui Nui Venison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I-Venison.com and use promo code BEAR for twenty percent off your first order. You know what my favorite text is? A waypoint and the Onyx Hunt app to a goblin turkey. The list on the Onyx Hunt app features for chasing turkeys is long, but knowing exact public and private boundaries and land ownership details will help you find more places to hunt, whether that's on public or private. I'll be toting the Hunt app through the spring woods in a few states this year, and I recommend you do the same if you want more turkeys on your table. Also, Onyx has a special offer for you. Use code BEARGREASE to receive 20% off your membership at onxmapscom hunt this spring. My name is Clay Newcomb, and this is a production of the Bear Grease podcast called the Bear Grease Render, where we render down, dive deeper, and look behind the scenes of the actual Bear Grease podcast. Presented by FHF Gear, American-made, purpose-built hunting and fishing gear that's designed to be as rugged as the places we explore.
2: Speaking of big mustaches... Yeah. If you notice in this room,
3: <laughs> there's one person. Somebody one. is missing a mustache, <laughs> and I think we
2: should do something about that.
3: Oh, you get done. to take your pick. Misty.
2: <laughs>
1: so, uh, yeah, Misty, Misty is usually, and today, the only one in the room without a mustache. It's true. If you would, if it would make you feel better. Not if them. you would make it make you feel better. <laughs> I it purchased these months ago
2: <laughs> <laughs> to make you feel welcome, and so you should feel obligated. So there's the Fu Manchu, the Dolly,
1: the Disco Brave, the Lawn Art Con Artist, Rollin' Roly, Rich Uncle Nickel Bags. Yeah. Shoot,
3: <laughs> give uh, me Nickel Bags. I'm not sure that Fu Manchu. I don't think I have a long enough chin <laughs> for that. I think,
2: yeah, I think you'd look good in a number of those. <laughs> So you get to pick oh, yeah. your pick.
3: So this is a gift so that I... Uh, yeah. All right. Yeah, yeah. You know, I've always been kind of grateful to <laughs> to not have a mustache. So I've got well, some ancestors. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to
1: the Bear Grease Render Podcast. We have, uh, we have a very special guest today, for real, like a real special guest. But before we introduce him, I'm going to... Uh, I got a few things I want to show you guys. Okay, oh. while Misty's picking out her mustache, so Josh has bought her. Josh went to like a Dollar General or something, and, and I ordered oh, these on a, this on, is a, a wow, on a. Oh wow! This an online retailer, which we will not mention.
4: <laughs> these are official.
1: Okay, so Misty's uh, Misty's putting on her her stash, so she'll feel. This she'll feel I good. Misty, I feel like you've made an excellent choice here. Okay, good.
3: Is it on straight? Uh, yeah.
1: See. Now, okay. <laughs> It's going to be pure chaos. Oh, now. yeah. You look you
2: look amazing. You've never looked better, Misty. Uh, uh, as, her, as her husband. This is approved for this setting. <laughs> as her husband, how do you feel about your yeah, wife's mustache? It might be like
1: a waxing deal, you know, like the ladies do where they rip it off. and it, <laughs> That would be awesome. That would be awesome. So, I've got a few things I'd like to... I'd like to share with you before I introduce our guest. Now, guests, you feel free to chime in at any time. They're just if they hear your voice, they'll they'll just wonder who you are. I was out on the phone today. Do you know much about arrowheads, Jeremy? A little Their bit. Stone little points. Bit. I was uh I was out today talking on the phone, walking through the mule pasture. And anytime we get a big rain, I'm telling you, anytime we get a big rain, if you want to walk out there, you'll find flint points. I found, actually found two, but this is a broken. It's it's half a point. And I really believe that was probably an actual arrowhead. Most of the points you find that are slightly bigger are adlatal or spear points. You look good. <laughs> 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 it's really hard to take you serious with that. Uh, <laughs> this is uh, so. This is what the, what I have is the is the haft and the two corner notches. But that's a pretty. That's a that's a really nice mm-hmm. looking. Yeah, and man, I, I tell you what, when I saw this, do you know what I did? I picked it up and took and it back to my office with me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm kind of on a little bit of a, a tangent about people saying, don't pick up stone points. If you're on public land, you can't. And it's a law. And that's 100%. Like, you can't pick it up. That's okay. If you're on private you land- You can or can't? You cannot. You cannot. Okay. you cannot pick up artifacts or really anything off of private on public, public land. Right, that's right, okay. Right, right. But I, I've had some kind of- people say that you shouldn't pick up a stone point. And I, I, I just, it just doesn't make any sense to me because if, if this were, if this were the Folsom site, right. and if, if like if people, if archaeologists hear that I'm finding stone points in my front yard and they want to come to my house and do a full excavation, come on, man, we'll make coffee. We'll have you on the podcast. <laughs> like if y'all want to do an archaeological dig in my front yard, you're welcome to. I don't think that's going to happen because Mm-mm. there's about 30,000 other places that are more likely for this to happen. Are you with me? Mm -hmm. I'm
2: totally with you, and I don't see uh, the—what would be the point of
1: leaving—no pun intended—what would be the point of leaving it there? Well, so so the the only point—and I agree with this—is that by taking something out of, you know, they call it NC2, when it's found, a point or artifact found just like it lays— There's a lot of value inside of that for archaeologists. If you mess around with it, then a lot of the story is lost.
2: But if that stone point is sitting on the surface, and the next rain it's going to be in the creek, Exactly. what's the point of leaving it there?
1: Right, and Mm -hmm. the legality of it. Now, if I was on somebody else's land and I didn't have express permission to take a stone point, I wouldn't. In every stone point I've ever found on someone else's land, I have gone and asked them if I could keep it, and that is the truth. Um. But anyway, I have quite the collection up here, Jeremy, of stone <laughs> points. Most of them came from my front yard down here. Do you feel like there's but an
2: inordinate number of stone points in that field right I there? I think
1: there's a couple of factors right here that are important. Uh, there's a big year-round spring about 100 yards from right here where we sit. Yeah. Mm. Uh, there's also – it's the intersection of two creeks on a little low spot down here. Right. I think this valley had a fair bit of Native American camping activity. Um, so just the fact that it's a valley – Probably means that it had some, maybe a little bit more than normal. But like the next valley over, I mean, there's nothing special about this one.
2: Your neighbor found a pretty good sized stone point. Did he show you that?
1: Which one? Oh, yes, he did. Yeah, <clears throat> far away from here. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. No, no, not far away from here. He found, fa- nope, he found it at the place uh, two miles away. Uh, yeah, he didn't okay. found it back in here. Um, But no, I feel like the most respectful thing that I could do for the human that made that was to pick that up and ponder about it. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah. And show it to people. Yeah. So I, I just, what do you think, Misty?
3: Well, I think Sometimes
1: Misty thinks I uh, pick fights yeah. just for no reason. I mean, reason. I just
3: think, I, I, don't, I don't love that when he gets all snippy like that. Did y'all <laughs> it's, hear it's that not in his snippy, tone of voice? It's a
1: soapbox.
2: It's, well, and everybody's it's entitled snippy, to I mean, have it, their soapbox. Just, so.
3: He's got a, more than one, you know, everyone's entitled to yeah. have their, uh, yeah. as in, you know. And
2: anybody I've can kinda, start a
1: podcast.
2: Mm-hmm. I I did get on I did Facts. get on to my daughter the other day about being opinionated.
1: <laughs> like okay, <laughs> we'll move on. We'll move on past and I just want to say I I deeply respect the archaeological community and I do not intend to disturb any kind of major Sites, but I mean, like I put up stone points, and people pick on me for picking it up, and I'm like,
3: "Let me just say this too." Land. I think one of the cool sorry, things- Jeremy,
1: oh. our, our guest here has been has been uh, thrust <laughs> oh, into. I think one of the cool debate. things that
3: Clay does with those points, though, I will just say this: since our kids were little, he would like show them to him, and he'd be he would tell them and the last guy that uh, you're laughing because of my mustache. <laughs> it's going to be difficult. So, um, okay, also that. itches, um, but he said he would always like hold up the. He'd always hold up the points to him and be like, The last guy that held this was, you know, sharpening this for his dinner. And he'd like make yep. a little story for him about. And I feel like that always gave our kids some appreciation for, for the people who came before. And I think that's a value. Yeah. I
2: it think makes so. you feel like a part of the whole story when yeah. you do that. Because it's a, it's, it's, a it's a bizarre, bizarre human age.
1: experience to not get your food from the killing of an animal yeah. with a stone point. For real. <laughs> you know, there's been, it's estimated that like 108 billion humans have ever lived on planet earth okay right now there's about 7.7 something billion people on earth so there have been about a hundred billion people that are no longer alive that have been on the earth we've only been experimenting with this whole agriculture thing for about ten thousand years for real it's it's a it's a it it could be argued but it would be a legitimate statement to say the people who live in modern times are absolutely absolutely experimenting with the way humans should live. Mm-hmm. Most humans that have ever lived were killing their animals with stone points.
3: Great question, follow-up. Is the experiment working? Oh,
1: wow. You have to, we'll tune, have to ask, tune into Wild and Hold for that. We'll have to that. ask our <laughs> guests later. Yeah. Okay, so I, I hold in my hand a beautiful watercolor painting. That's water watercolor. Uh, I didn't know it was watercolor. Well, I don't know what it is. <laughs> uh, Do uh, I mean, <laughs> you, you think I was there when <laughs> she painted this? I mean, come on, uh, man, just go with it, okay? I <laughs> hold in my hand. a beautiful watercolor. A beautiful watercolor painting yeah. <laughs> of um, Warner Glenn with the with the jaguar. Who painted so, it? So uh, a a a, a well known artist by the last name of Demoss. Okay and I purchased this online oh, okay yeah and so if you type in uh, Warner Glenn Jaguar painting you can get a reprint of this and I'm gonna hang this up in the office mm. and so this image of this Jaguar is the actual photo I mean that that's what the jag- that's what Warner Glenn's photo looked like when he took the picture of the Jaguar but he wasn't in the but he line. wasn't so the, the the author took some liberty to Put Warner Glenn coming up there with his white walker dogs. But, uh, Jeremy, so we, we've we interviewed and spent quite a bit of time with this old man named Warner Glenn. He's 86 years old. He lives in southeast Arizona, and he was the first person in the modern times to document a live jaguar in the United States. So he, these jaguars. Does j- Arkansas have a jaguar biologist? <laughs> if it was, it'd be Myron Means. Yeah, right? <laughs> it would be. Yeah. My Means is our jaguar biologist. <laughs> yeah. He's my jaguar biologist. Um, <laughs> Not my and, jaguar biologist. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Warner has the original painting of this hanging in his house. And it's huge. It is huge. I mean, it's like six foot by probably five foot, maybe bigger, maybe eight. It's huge. Wow. But um, we were right in this country back in early March when we went to Warner Glens. We made a film. And I mean, I'll I'll go ahead and tell you, there's going to be a film come out about Warner Glenn from Meat Eater. No, I really don't. But it's going to be incredible. He's 86 years old, Jeremy, and still rides a mule 2,500 miles a year. Just a bad-to-the-bone, dry-ground lion hunter. Living legend. uh, He really is a living legend. Warner Glenn. That being said, Kelly Glenn Kimbrough, his daughter, uh, sent me an email yesterday. And Warner Glenn's Oldest best dog named Hook died. Oh, passed away. Hook was 12 years old. So we hunted with Hook. Yeah, Yeah. he talked about uh, him. Yeah. Yeah. He did. He did. Yeah. And uh, Hook bayed a lion in a bluff on, uh, let's see, on like in early April. He bayed a lion in a bluff and the, the lion jumped off a big cliff and Hook. He didn't jump, but Hook went down after the lion, the only dog in the pack, as I understood it, that went down. And the, and the, the, the rock around that area is just incredible. I mean, like you could get in a bind in a hurry. Uh-huh. And this lion went off, and Hook, 12 years old, went off with the lion and got down there and was baying the lion. Oh,
4: wow. and they ended up
1: killing the lion. And then it took Hook 45 minutes of just scratching up the rock bluff to get back up. And then later, they had, uh, he was fine after that. But mm. but later, he just, he, he had some, comp- not complications for that, but they had to put him down. Wow. But anyway, old Hook. But I wanted to what show you all that. Go. What, what a way Warner, to go. What
3: What did Warner Glenn say on the podcast? He said, this might be his last.
1: Well, he said, he said this might be Hook's last year, and it might be mine, is what he said. Yeah. Yeah. He said, me oh. and old Hook might go out at the same time. Mm. So I, I don't think that's going to happen, though. Mm. Um, yeah I wanted to show you all that and then look at this Colby I've made this for seen me that before Colby made this for me so this is a uh, what is that watercolor <laughs> on leather
4: it is paint on paint, paint on buckskin. leather Colby had Some this made
1: so you guys remember the podcast I did about whitetail secrets mm-hmm. and I talked about this big deer that I've been hunting for several years that we believe is dead um, and we named him Jody and I didn't tell why we named him Jody. There's a song by David Allen Coe called Jody Like a Melody. In the song, oh, I wish we could sing it. <laughs> I, I wish we could sing it. We don't need uh, to do it today, but we uh, can sing that song. Yeah, we can. But it, Jody but the,
3: Like a Melody.
1: Yeah, it's uh, there's like, if you listen to the song with the... Thoughts of a white-tailed deer that just comes in and out of your life, Jody, like a melody you play inside my head. Feel the thought of you is more than I can stand.
3: Yo, this is Late at husband. night, I lie awake and wait for
1: you to come on my tacticam. And when you don't, you know I almost lose my mind. Jody, like a melody, you warm it. Uh, so we named this deer Jody. Yeah. So Colby had came in and made out like a me. white
4: buffalo. Something of <laughs> legend yeah
1: all right enough enough foolishness we have a very distinguished guest with us today jeremy wood from the arkansas game and fish commission Woo.
5: welcome
1: welcome <laughs> jeremy Glad to i you here. told you we were going to cut up a little bit before uh before we got serious it's all good. Get in mood. <laughs> yeah yeah so jeremy is the wild turkey biologist for the state of arkansas which is a big deal um so we're gonna I just wanted to introduce him. Do we get to question him later? Oh, we're gonna grill him. (laughs) (laughs) This is the most, (laughs) this is the most hated (laughs) man in Arkansas. (laughs) What did you do with our turkeys?
4: (laughs) Oh, we're gonna—he
1: doesn't know—he's walked into a trap. No, 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 no. We all got great. I mean, I want to hear what you have to say. Before that, let me introduce all my guests. Okay, Misty Newcomb, Misty Mustache Newcomb. No, let's not do that. No, no, no. No. (laughs) Great to have you, Misty. Good to be here. Hey, did y'all know that? but I don't know if I can say this or not. Uh, I'm going to be on the live podcast, in in uh, the live mediator podcast. It's next week uh, in Bozeman, Montana. And I'm going to have a special guest with me on the live podcast. I won't say who. But anyway, that's going to be a big deal. <laughs> Um, that was to, the
3: worst <laughs> foreshadowing ever. <laughs> to, to Misty's left,
1: Josh Lambridge, filmmaker. Great to see you, Josh. And if that special guest can't go, I'd be happy to go with you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Good to see you, Josh. Thanks um, good to be here. To your left, a guest who's been on here before, True. but it's been a while. It's been a while. Colby Moorhead. Good Thank to you. see you, man. Good to see you. The Bear Tech. It's good to be back. So, uh, So Colby, for anybody who wouldn't know Colby from my... From my world. Colby runs Bear Honey Magazine. Facts. Don't talk to me about Bear Honey Magazine. Talk to Colby. Yeah. I spend most of my life directing people to Colby. Yeah. Bear Honey Magazine, for those who wouldn't know much about it, Bear Hunting Magazine has been in print for 22 years. Yes. Wow.
4: Since 2000.
1: Yeah. Since 2000. The only print Bear Honey Magazine in the world. Facts. Yep. Just the facts. Just take it or leave it. And, um, the, The magazine. Describe the magazine. What what do we have in there?
4: Well, you know, it's just a beautiful collection of stories and information. (laughs) (laughs) That sounded kind of polished. No, it's uh it's just a collection of just people's stories. We take submissions, we have freelance writers, and they just uh there'll be tips and tactics and uh just stories and you really never know what to expect except that it's gonna be very well produced and laid out and then we'll we always try to tell the story visually as well you know as just yeah. through the written words so if you're someone that likes to just flip through a magazine look at the pretty pictures that's cool if yeah. you want to dive in and just read it cover to cover that's cool if you're just into hounds and just want to read that content and look at everything else like it really is something that if you're interested in bear hunting or just like to know more about that yeah you, you know there's people that get it and never have intentions of bear hunting yeah so it's just a good just a good interface and I,
2: I would say that as a subscriber, it is some fantastic tactile bathroom reading.
4: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: Good.
2: Well,
3: I don't think we want to know what that means.
2: You can put two and two together.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so I always tell people, if you want to get into any kind of bear hunting, so Bear Hunting Magazine, we've always tried to give the full gamut of North American bear hunting, mm-hmm. which is interesting because a lot of times a species will be so... Isolated to one region. Like if you're hunting elk, I mean, you're pretty much going to be talking about the Rocky Mountain West. If you're, uh, I mean, there's other species that are widespread, but the bear is the most wide, naturally widely distributed big game mammal other than the mountain lion in North America. Chew on that. Just chew on it. Then think about it. So, pre European settlement, the most wide, widely distributed mammal. In North America, mm. big game mammal was the mountain lion. They were mm-hmm. ev- just almost coast to coast from Canada to Mexico.
3: That is but new information. Second,
1: for me. second was the black bear. So I say that to say we hunt black bear in the east in all these different methods. A lot mm. of hounds, a lot of big woods, eastern deciduous forest, spot and stalk stuff, driving, dri- you know, doing drives in Pennsylvania. Yep. But then you get into The west and you have this big spot and stalk type hunting you also have hounds up in canada in the boreal forest there's it's so thick typically it's uh you're you're hunting bears over bait you can go to alaska and have all kind of different hunting come to arkansas you know you hunt them over bait spot and stalk whatever just there's a lot of different ways to do it so the magazine tries to reflect that that's all i wanted to say but uh colby so what we're trying to do we're mm-hmm. there's a there's a thing that uh blood robbie origins. kroger at uh blood origins yeah mm-hmm. at 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 blood origins tell us about what he's doing
4: yeah so <clears throat> there's a project he's wanting to help support the arkansas fishing game especially in, it was specifically inside of the black bear research and so they're looking to expand and and really seeing how that's going to affect things, they're just wanting to learn more about the population of black bears in the and it's particularly with the southeastern
1: United States where they na- yeah. or United States southeast Arkansas, Arkansas where they well southern the Gulf Coastal Plain of Arkansas which mm-hmm. is like the southern one third where they are now opening up a season
4: yeah yeah further furthering out the the previous drawn zones and uh, anyways they're starting a fundraiser they're trying to raise seventy thousand dollars to to give to this project, and so they're having people open up their own fundraising and and help, you know, commit to to trying to reach that goal. And so what we're going to do is Bear Hunting Magazine is going to start a a fundraiser inside, under Blood Origins, that uh, we're going to be giving away two different hunts to uh, people. One is going to go to the top donor. They're going to be able to pick between the two hunts. And then we're also, anyone who donates even a, a dollar or whatever the minimum would be, will be thrown into a hat to, uh, to get the remaining hunt. And so one hunt is going to be a coon hunt in Arkansas, and the other hunt is going to be a hog hunt in East Texas. And uh, that hunt's going to be a lot of fun. We'll be riding around side-by-sides uh, with thermals and, and doing some night hunting, could do some day hunting too, uh, but to just get into uh, just some fun different activities that won't get in the way of your personal hunting season, so we're going to be very flexible on on dates, and we'll we'll be around. You know, we're going to be really uh, going around your schedule. Yeah. And
1: so, that. are you going to tell who the coon hunts with?
4: The coon hunt is with Mister Velvety Smooth Voice, Brent Reeves. Oh. oh, yeah, that needed a drum roll. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then, uh, I'll, and Waylon, and Waylon, and Waylon. Yeah, Waylon, yeah, and I'll be at that hunt, and so will the uh, David McDaniels. He's East Texas Camo on on Instagram. He's going to uh, be hosting the hunt with, I think it's Foul Boar Outfitters in, in East Texas.
1: So basically, what he's saying is that you go to the Blood Origins website and you mm-hmm. click on the the Black Bear Fund, Arkansas Black Bear Fund, mm-hmm. and you go in there and you'll see a bunch of teams. Yeah, and you basically pick which team you want to donate money to. Mm-hmm. And so Colby's saying Bear Honey Magazine, Bear Honey Magazine, the the highest donor. So you you know you could give. Ten bucks, or a hundred bucks, or a thousand bucks, or if you were Elon Musk and you know
4: maybe <laughs> forty four billion, a, a billion. Bucks. <laughs> yeah,
1: um, you could buy. I tell you, I'm going to make an offer to mm-hmm. Elon Musk yeah. right now.
4: Yeah. Okay.
1: <laughs> Meat eater and me will sell him the Bear Grease podcast for one billion dollars. That's I'm going to even just go above my pay grade yeah on, uh, I'm not
3: sure you're authorized to cut this I deal. know I'm not but I think <laughs> they would be
1: okay with this yeah so okay back on track here uh, so the does person, it have to be Elon Musk that's no. only for Elon Musk okay, okay. <laughs> yeah. so no
2: one else with a billion dollars nope could step in no nope. just okay. well, well. think of what
1: they would do with it it could be anything yeah. I'd trust Elon <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, The. so so the person that Donates the most gets to pick whether they go on a hog hunt yes or a coon hunt with Brent Reeves yes yeah and then the second person just entered into a or anybody is entered into a draw it, really they're 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 raising seventy thousand dollars which is a pretty noble cause to give to the game and fish to buy mm-hmm. tracking collars to study Arkansas black bears understand what's going on big deal yeah. I love it that's, yeah that's pretty it's cool a huge deal. hats off to them for working hard for that hey before we go much further I want to talk about the last. Bear Grease podcast. So it was it was quite different than anything we've ever done. We've never had just a compilation of stories. I think we had eight turkey stories on there, and uh, I've really enjoyed gathering the stories. I mean, it was fun talking great about all those stories. guys. Yeah. They were great stories. Yeah. So all of you, most of you, listen <laughs> to the podcast. <laughs> Josh, what was your favorite? What was your favorite one? Okay, so I I I have
2: a favorite story and a favorite part of a story. Okay, that that's that's connected. That's fair. My favorite story was Giannis's story. Really? Cause, yeah, cuz I just love I love that that idea of his wife First of all, I love it when a dad takes care of his kids so his wife can go do something. That's an honorable yeah. thing. Yeah. And I found it interesting that Giannis' wife was gone for like nine hours, and he was just like, I'm going to go to bed. She'll be fine. Yeah. fine. <laughs> but uh, but I love the fact that she got so excited about it, and she was able to detail to him where the turkey was and then him go in and kill it. What a cool thing. I yeah. mean, that's a great, great, great story of
1: partnership. But I – I Hold love... on. Before, before you go okay. to that one, can I can I comment on Giannis' story? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had somebody go – Man, what a chauvinistic move to go kill your wife's turkey. (laughs) (laughs) He never made any mention of that. But apparently, you know, they had some agreement or or something that, you know, he was the one that was going to get to hunt the next morning. And since that was recorded. Oh, yeah. Well, since that was recorded, Giannis and his wife went out on their annual turkey hunt and they both killed turkeys. Oh, that's awesome. Like last week. So, yeah, I thought that was a good one. Okay. Yeah. and then That's the favorite other, part of another turkey
2: story. Now, the favorite part of the other turkey story was Andy Brown telling that story about the guy with the turkey on the other side <laughs> of the log. Yeah. And my favorite part of it is when he said, and I just retched up <laughs> underneath the <laughs> log.
4: <laughs>
2: what a
1: redneck term.
2: Wrench. I
1: retched up underneath it. I love it. That yeah, was awesome. Yeah, I could tell when he started telling that story that some i didn't he didn't tell me what it was about he just said he said i got one more i'd like to tell you and he had spoken in his like normal voice the whole time and he said there was an old boy <laughs> and you know, he kind of like dove into kind of this character you know and uh and started telling that story I and it uh, up under, I him up him under that the, log. Re- that reminded me of uh there's a there's a term it's used in the Ozarks probably used in the Appalachians too um, where words are sometimes uh, like the plural of the word is yeah. is, is is was warped. Like Ori Province, when I or, when I interviewed Ori Province, this old mountain man out here, he said he he clumb a tree. Clumb, mm-hmm. yeah, climb. The
2: Past tense, <laughs> like wretched is past tense of
1: reach. Yeah, yeah. They're, past tense, not yeah. plural.
3: Past tense. Yeah, they're applying standard English rules to words that we don't.
1: Okay, is that what they're doing? Yeah, yeah.
3: Think, yeah, that's what they're. Cause think about
1: it. Reach, reach.
3: Drug. Drag, climb.
1: What
2: did what did Ori Province say? I clumb, I clumb, clumb. I clumb the tree.
1: Yeah. Anyway, yeah. That that was. I I like that story. Doc yeah. Ryburn down yeah. in Louisiana. That was a, that great was a good story. One.
3: Maybe actually they're they're applying irregular applications. Misty the. Hey, sure. that, brings up, that brings up that brings up
1: something I've been wanting to talk about, and and we're not because we're going to go right to Colby, um, but. Uh, Jerry Clower, we did an episode on Jerry Clower, Mm -hmm. and they constantly use the word that what for that that."
3: which our daughter they would say until she was like seven. Mm. I mean, she was pretty old, and and she innately did that.
1: They would say like rather than saying um, we're going to take the car that we used to drive on Sunday, but we're not. They'd Mm -hmm. say we're going to take the car what we used to drive on Sunday, but now we don't anymore. That, like constantly yeah. he used the word what where we would say that. yeah okay colby moving right along favorite that, turkey story of that those language eight?
4: sounds normal to me <laughs> yeah. colby's like what are we talking what about what are we talking about uh man i like the the general theme is it always involved someone else and there was a lot of perseverance inside like i thought that was really cool but my hat tip would probably go to mr will you know just i could put myself in that story of just like i could I could visualize that whole thing. It was like I was just there with him, inside of it. And
1: uh, was it the way he told
4: it? It was the way he told it. It was the relationship he had with the the landowner, and then it was also like overcoming. Like, man, nobody's been able to get this one for years, and he's just going there. And he's like, I, I, you know, I wonder if he just wasn't thinking. What have I gotten myself into? They done named this bird and I can't get to him and and so it's like, man, I'm gonna have to work hard. What do I do? (laughs) You know, and then just overcoming an obstacle and just you know, I just like the the whole kind of climatic way that he told that that story. story. Yeah.
1: And you know, of all the turkeys Will's killed, which he's killed hundreds probably.
4: And you could just hear his humility inside of it, you know. I thought that was cool too. Yeah. He seems like a really humble guy.
5: Cool. Jeremy, what was your favorite story? So I've got, I've got two, and, and but it both basically kind of boils down to one point. You know, I was listening to one of yours and one of Steve's, you know, talking about taking the kids out hunting and, and thinking about – you know, how literal, you know, kids take a lot of things. So yeah. I don't remember if it's your daughter or yeah. niece that, you know, you know, taking don't out and like, eyes. don't open your eyes. And like, did you see it? No. That's <laughs> <laughs> like, I heard all of this unfolding, but I was just like, I couldn't yeah, do it. Yeah. And, and then Steve's, you know, thinking about his daughter and like, you know, shooting in the head and, well, I can't see the head and he's telling me to shoot. Well, <laughs> and I can't I go, talk. And I can't <laughs> yeah. talk. So I got to shoot here. And so I was like, just trying to like, just soak all that in thinking, you know, six, seven years down the line or more, you know, mm-hmm. whenever we feel comfortable enough with, with our own son to be like, okay, you know, maybe we can try to get out here and try to take one. Like, okay, you know, h- how do you learn from those, those kind of mistakes? Keep now, your eyes those things. Open.
1: Uh, yeah. 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 You can take literal cues from those stories of what not to, or to walk him through. Yeah. Well, and then Andy Brown talked yep. about his son, Scott,
3: mm-hmm.
1: who didn't shoot a walking turkey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You remember that? Uh-huh. Yeah. And that was that was the exact. I hadn't even put all those three together, but those mm-hmm. three stories. Oh yeah. From Steve's story of his daughter shooting a turkey when it, when she didn't have a good shot because he had told her not to talk, yeah. so she couldn't tell him that he she shouldn't shoot, but he said shoot, so she's just like okay, boom, <laughs> and then to. Mallory closing her eyes, and we told her, Turkey, you'll see the whites of your eyes. So she's (laughs) like, Solve that problem. (laughs) Close her eyes. Turkey's come strutting in. And then to Andy Brown telling Scott, Don't shoot at a walking turkey. And so this turkey just just walks right in front. Anyway, go ahead, Jeremy.
5: I'd never connected those three. That's good. Yeah, but no, that that, that was really it. You know, just like taking those lessons, you know, to heart and like just thinking about them. And they're all. Fun stories to listen to, obviously. And then, but yeah, just taking that into my own personal, you know, just bank. Like, okay, how, how do I, yeah. how do I word this, you know, down the line when I'm trying to go through those same lessons? You know, be yeah. like, okay, you need to shoot it in the head, but don't, don't just focus like, you know, just make sure you focus and you shoot it yeah. on the head. But don't, if I tell you to shoot, you know, tell me if you can't shoot or something like that. Misty, you know, what's
1: the developmental <laughs> thing that's going on there with kids when they take you concrete. literally?
3: <laughs> They're concrete thinkers, they haven't developed abstract thought yet.
1: So if you say, don't shoot a turkey walking, your dad really does not mean that entirely. He just means if you have a choice and the turkey's like, you know. Yeah, he,
3: yeah, they're taking it concretely. They don't, they're not picturing, like they're just applying literal concrete rules to this. And that's
1: pretty much the way a kid mm. should take what their parents say during that period of their life. Yes. exactly what I say. Don't take any liberty of yourself to think on your own. Sort of. Sort of. Okay. My, my, my favorite story, I think, and and all of them had a lot of unique dynamics. It's hard, but I liked Mo's story. Oh yeah, and part. So there's when I just petitioned these guys to tell me their favorite turkey story. In my mind, a turkey story was good because of some dynamic hunting component or something like really exciting that was said, but or, or exciting that happened, like a turkey. Did something really wild. It was interesting for me to hear all the reasons why, because I didn't try to coach him of like what, why something would be good or bad. And Giannis and Steve both said, Hey, our stories are like, they kind of were like, I hope this is what you're looking for. And I was like, No, you just, you get to decide what your favorite turkey hunt story is. Mm -hmm. And so it was interesting for Giannis, because he's killed a lot of turkeys and had a lot of real exciting hunts. And he tells this one story about his wife. You know, mm-hmm. and then Steve has killed a lot of turkeys, had a lot of exciting turkey hunts, and he tells a story about his daughter. I thought Moe's was interesting. I liked that uh, his dad woke him up, and this is when Moe was an adult. Mm-hmm. His dad woke him up and said, "You might as well go." And that was a theme. I, I know from talking to Moe that that was the theme of his, his dad always used to say, can't kill him when you're on the couch." Like that was just just go. Just go. Yeah, and that's a good. If you want to be a successful hunter, you just got to go. Yeah, can't wait for conditions to always be right. I like how usually his dad, they're not. He said, his dad said, "Well, you thought you heard one. That's better than all the ones you didn't hear."
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah,
4: yeah.
1: And it basically two mornings, exact same scenario. Very unlikely. I mean, killing a bird and pouring down rain off mm-hmm. the roost. I mean, I would say is a highly unlikely scenario. Yeah. Two mornings in a row, same spot, same story. I mean, that that, that would never line up. That would line up once in a lifetime for something like that to happen. I just thought it was pretty cool. One of my
2: favorite quotes from from, uh, one of the stories was Will Primos when he said, he said, uh, it may not have worked any other
1: day, but it worked that
2: day. (laughs) Exactly. That was good.
1: That was good. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame when you use code BEAR, B-E-A-R, BEAR. That's AuraFrames.com. Use code BEAR at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Montana Knife Company was founded by Josh Smith one of the world's most experienced master bladesmiths. He's been making knives for 30 years. Made in the USA and manufactured locally in Montana. The knives come with a multi-generational warranty and free sharpening. Designed, tested, and built by hunters, MKC is a hunting knife company first and foremost. They have the sharpest knives out of the box and the easiest knives to sharpen. And that is the dadgum truth. You better be careful with them when you get them. They are sharp. MKC is a fast-growing company. They just hired their 55th employee and are looking to hire about 50 more in the next year or so. I've carried a lot of these Montana knives. And the one that I like the most is their Speed Goat, which is a lightweight hunting knife, just the right size. MKC knives sell out within minutes of being released. So head over to MontanaKnifeCompany.com. They have new knives for sale every Thursday at 7 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. So check their website and sign up for their text and email alerts. That is the best way to find out when they have knives available. Use code BEARGREASE10 for 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company, working knives for working people. The old timers say that the turkeys start gobbling when the leaves are as big as squirrel's ears and the red buds start popping. And we're about there. And we are there in the South. The Onyx Hunt app is one of my most valuable tools in the spring woods. With tools like coniferous versus deciduous tree distribution layer, you can save time by locating edges or transition areas of mixing habitats from home. Find an area like this with water in close proximity, and more than likely, there will be a goblin turkey nearby. Knowing the exact boundaries of private ground ensures I stay on the right side of the fence, but can easily find public ground to go see if I can't strike a gobbler. If you do get one to sound off, using compass mode and waypoints will help you pinpoint his exact location, allowing you to move in and make the perfect setup to bring him right into your lap. Download the OnX Hunt app today. You'll be glad you did. Onex has a special offer for you. Use code BEARGREASE to receive 20% off your membership at slash hunt this spring. All right, I hold in my right hand here the 2022 Arkansas Turkey Hunting Guidebook. And so, gobble, we're going to talk we're going to talk here to Mr. Jeremy. We're uh, going to
2: see if you have this memorized. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> just
1: open up to page 27. I, I once knew a guy. This is a true story. I once knew a guy, and I can't say his name. He's still alive. I mean, he's not even that old. And he once handed us a book, me and my dad, about uh, ornithology. What? Ornithology. ornithology. Birds. Study of birds. Oh, okay. And, uh, and he said, he just handed it to him. He was trying to show us that he knew a lot. <laughs> and he said, pick out any page on there and ask me any question. And. Dad I was standing there. Dad <laughs> just picks it up, opens it up and says, "All right, page 133. You know, the speckled-belly winged tarminger." And he and he he read verbatim like what it said about that. Really? It, the guy just like a freak genius. And he said, "I've memorized that book." Well, and he had he at least convinced us. Yeah, unless it was a magician. That's impressive. Unless, unless he had it rigged where you opened it up and your finger <laughs> went to like yeah. the same spot. Long story. Okay, so Jeremy, back to Jeremy. Man, you are you're not from Arkansas. No,
5: no. But no. tell
1: me a little bit about your career in wildlife biology. Like, where have you been, and how did you get here?
5: Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. Transplant, not, not from Arkansas, from Massachusetts originally. Okay. Um, went to University of Maine for my undergraduate degree okay. in wildlife ecology and trying to figure out what I wanted to do in this world. You know, I, I hadn't figured my place by the time I finished my undergraduate degree. So I jumped around the country. I lived in Wyoming, Louisiana, Florida, you know, Working with different state agencies, different federal agencies, universities, really trying to figure out my place in the world and got into working with wild turkeys under Mike Chamberlain there at the University of Georgia. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Um, Early on, one of his grad students took a chance on me. I hadn't had any experience with game birds to that point. And, you know, I basically got hooked to that point with turkeys and did that position, jumped the next year, worked with another graduate student before I ended up getting my own graduate uh, project under Mike back in 2014 so I did that for a few years graduated with my master's from the University of Georgia and then moved down to Florida got with their turkey program I was their assistant wild turkey program coordinator for about a year when this opportunity came up here in Arkansas and I took a chance and the agency took took a a chance chance on me sure man (laughs) uh so what year did you become the wild turkey biologist here here late summer 2018. 2018. So it's my fourth season, fourth turkey season here in Arkansas. Right on. What and just go?
3: out of curiosity, when you were in Massachusetts, what got you interested in wildlife?
5: It was, you know, honestly, I, I grew up fishing. My grandfather hunted his whole life. Uh, I shot a little bit when I was growing up with him. Never got into hunting, and I went to undergraduate thinking, you know, I'm going to go on the wildlife side of things. You know, I, I like to fish too much. I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that. You know, and okay. go for a fisheries degree or anything like that. I'm going to go go for wildlife because fishing's what I love to do. I don't want to ruin that by going going to work in <laughs> yeah. wildlife. And next thing you know, I got into hunting outside of uh, my undergraduate. You know, early 20s. Once I graduated, I got into hunting, and it's you know been. But a love affair basically ever since. What was your thesis on with Mike? Cameron? So with Mike, so I, I looked at the reproductive ecology of female wild turkeys. So looking at nesting, brood rear in relation to small scale prescribed fires during the nesting season. Oh. You know, obviously a lot, oh, lot exactly of concern. That's exactly what I wanted to talk to about. Expert. <laughs> <laughs> so so you what'd know. you learn? that honestly, you know, very few nests are actually lost to fire. You know, there's, at least in that in that system where I was at in southwest Georgia, I mean, they're managing it more for quail. Um, so they're talking about a lot of smaller burns, um, frequent fires. And so they're burning on a two- to three-year fire return interval, well, sometimes sooner, depending on the objectives and what they needed to do within that stand. But you're talking about acreages that may range from, you know, 50 acres to a couple hundred acres in size, and a typical burn, and they may be doing two, three units a day if the conditions were right. We're working in longleaf pine savanna, so really open, kind of flat communities that you know you lit a match and you could get them to to roll across that fairly quickly. But you know, in general, most of the stands that those birds were targeting to nest, you know, were about a year or two post-fire, and they weren't. They were still a year or more out from. From having another burn rolled through there mm. so you know we didn't lose a single nest in the study to fire when were they burning they're burning anywhere from january all the way up into
1: june okay. really yeah okay give us a give us a rundown of the arkansas turkey situation because so two podcasts ago you know we talked with mike chamberlain and we always hear how arkansas is like the poster child for the southeast turkey decline and so give us kind of a timeline of history of the Arkansas turkey population, to the best of your knowledge, bringing it up till today.
5: Mm-hmm. So, you know, from, from my understanding, basically, you know, if if we go back about 100 years or so, you know, early 1900s, populations in the state were, you know, hitting their about lowest points by nineteen 1940s. They're estimated to be only about... 7,000 wild turkeys left in the state Um, game fish commission was created around 1915 and you know late teens early 20s they're already starting to think about you know what they needed to do with wild turkeys started setting seasons adjusting bag limits though they're still incredibly liberal to what you see today but they also started considering restocking with captive raised wild turkeys you know game farm birds and they put those out for many years and wasn't really successful at all. Those birds didn't have the the natural instincts, you know, to actually survive in the wild. They weren't used to predators, anything mm-hmm. like that. And it wasn't until rocket nets were really picked up in popularity and that technique was developed in the late 40s, early 50s, that, you know, catching wild, wild birds and so, moving Misty, them. So
1: that's when they would put out bait for turkeys. Big flock of turkeys would come in and they had rocket propelled nets that would shoot out and catch a whole flock of turkeys. And then they'd take those turkeys, transport them somewhere else. So that was in the
5: 1940s. Yep, yep. And early so they were
1: able – and they were bringing turkeys in from other states
5: or just other places where we had turkeys? Some other states. You know, we had some birds coming in from places like Missouri. I think we did get some birds from Pennsylvania at points, um, both captive-reared ones and actual wild stock birds. But the majority of the birds in the state actually came from Brandywine Islands, an island over – I think it's Mississippi County yeah. in, the, in the middle of the Mississippi River huh. – really good turkey populations over there. And so they caught a lot of birds there and moved them to different kind of refuges around the state where they were stocked. You know, early on they let hunting still go and, you know, realized that some of those situations wasn't working that well. So they got to the point where they started closing those areas for a period of years to allow those birds to naturally repopulate the area and expand. You know, I think they were estimating that they'd expand somewhere 10 to 20 miles over several years um, and, and kind of fill those, those habitats at the time and so most of that restocking was finished by the the early to mid 90s though there were still really so
1: for 50 years they were real restocking turkeys
5: yep and the majority of those you know kind of focused in and around the the national forest lands large public lands because you know early on the the idea was that you know wild turkeys were uh you know They needed thick forest, or not necessarily thick forest, but large expanses of forest because those are the areas that turkeys were left, you know, all these places that were harder to exploit. They hadn't really been harassed to the point that they were extirpated from the area like they were in a lot of other areas where there was there was more people and it was easier access so you know those early efforts focused there first and then built upon it it wasn't until you started getting to the 70s and 80s maybe the 90s where they started looking at what they considered these more marginal habitats where you had this more of a combination interspersion of kind of open land and forested habitats and realized that that's actually more of an ideal turkey habitat. And that's right. when populations that big, really exploded. The forest, yeah. yep. and, and so the
1: Arkansas turkey populations by the late 70s and 80s
5: just skyrocketed. Yeah, they started to jump. I mean, I think there were some periods, you know, even back in the 70s and 80s that you saw these fluctuations where we had good numbers and then there were some bad years, you know, following poor weather events, poor hatches. But in general, that trend was continuing to to increase all through time, and we hit about the early two thousands, and that's when when things peaked. You know, the late late nineties, early two thousands. You know, we ended up the highest harvest year we had was two thousand and three. The the state we harvested just under twenty thousand turkeys that year. Okay, and then there was
2: we refer to that time period
1: as the good old days.
2: <laughs> yes, yes,
5: that's what I hear often. So twenty thousand was our
1: biggest number of birds taken.
5: Yes, yes, just yeah. under that.
1: Now, that, that's always been an interesting number to me because, like, Missouri, they might kill 50,000 turkeys. Is mm-hmm. that about
5: right? Yeah, I mean, in recent years, it's been a lot less. But I think at their peak, which was in and around that same time, they killed about 60,000 turkeys up wow, there. That's a lot. Wow.
1: And I, I know you can't – it's not comparing apples <clears throat> to apples to compare two states. I mean, they had a lot of ag land mm-hmm. or maybe more ag land than us. I don't know. What about Mississippi? What would have there been their peak harvest numbers
5: i can't remember exactly what their peaks were but you know i think typically you see nowadays that they estimate somewhere in the 25 000 to thirty thousand range so it was probably somewhat higher it was just, notably
1: higher than arkansas though yeah yeah and I, yeah. I
5: can't remember what those figures were exactly but it was probably you know 35 40 000, something along and those now lines
1: would oklahoma not
5: have had more birds than us even historically at our peak Oklahoma gets difficult because you start moving into Rio Grande wild turkeys and the majority of the state, state. you know, basically your southeastern corner of the state's where you're, you have true Easterns. And then they, you know, they talk about this sort of hybrid zone between the two, but the majority of that kind of central and western portion of the state's Rio. So it starts getting a little different when, you know, it gets to that apples to oranges comparison to to truly say what's going on. I I honestly can't, couldn't tell you what their harvests look like through time. Yeah. Well, it it's kind of it's
1: interesting to me when we talk about the turkey situation here in Arkansas because really it's a pretty I mean 20 years isn't that long when you're looking at wildlife management and looking nope. at like a broad scale of animal populations going up and down. Um and and humans including myself and Josh are pretty finicky when it comes to uh turkey numbers. Um <laughs> I mean, you can go from a three-year period, and people might think, "Oh man, there's no turkeys anymore." And you know, three years before they were wearing them out. You know, right? Um,
3: but just but- to get, just so, so I I can be clear on this, what you're describing is an enormous amount of effort to get twenty thousand turkeys, which was still lower than what our the surrounding states had. At our peak, we were still smaller. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, and did the other states put forth the effort that we did?
5: It's it's hard as far as restocking them. Yeah. yeah so I mean, mostly. Yep. Yep. All these, <laughs> yeah. all these are. So this was happening across the country during yeah. this entire period. Um. You know, north to south, Louisiana to Wisconsin, east. You know, to Maine and and Florida. You know, all those states were experiencing these same declines. You know, in yeah. the early 1900s, and then through time, through the the middle 1900s, really started ramping up that. Um, those efforts in, in restocking. I think Mississippi was one of those states that was, was fairly early in there where they considered things to be successful and kind of complete. We, we were right there probably within a few years of what they would have assumed.
1: And So you can't really – like me comparing Arkansas to Missouri It's really not fair. Yeah. I mean, Missouri might be bigger. I don't know. It, it just has different habitats. So that's mm-hmm. not really relevant. But I just kind of was trying to get like a bigger picture of – because that was my understanding is that Missouri's always killed a bunch more than
5: us. Mississippi's always killed yep. a bunch more than us. What's interesting is, you know, a lot of people look at those border states, but I very rarely hear folks look south of the border. You know, they don't talk about Louisiana often. And, you know, that's one of the things that I've tried to do since I got here was kind of take a look at that, that landscape context. What, what are we looking at here in Arkansas? Because, you know, people talk about that that 20,000 birds and, you know, there's some some interesting things you know in regards to what our regulations were like at that time to where we're at now that they make it even harder to compare harvest to now to back then but when you just look at the landscape context you know most of arkansas a larger proportion of arkansas looks a lot like louisiana and, you know, they, they typically harvest you know about three to five thousand birds or so on average their estimates yeah between their uh-huh. you know game check and then their estimates you know on hunter uh, surveys they're estimating right in that ballpark. So we're we're just a little bit above that. And then you move into Missouri and you know obviously they're they're killing a ton of different birds, but you know, Arkansas is this unique mix of these different regional well, it's, landscapes it's highlands all coming and together. Lowlands. Yep. I mean, essentially. Yeah, I mean, you got the Ozarks on the kind of the northern quarter of the state. You move in down south below the river valley, you know, that's a whole unique area. Then you get in the Ouachita Mountains below that, you got that large portion of the states, the Gulf Coastal Plain, you know, primarily pine managed timber, mm-hmm. and then you move over in the you know entire eastern about quarter to third of the states, this really developed um, agricultural land, bottom land, laying around all these major river corridors. So you know, the, really the only remaining habitat out there is these bottom land tracks along the White, the Cache River, the Mississippi right. River, Crowley's Ridge that formation. But outside of that, you know, it's essentially non habitat. So you know, that really restricts the Amount of available habitat yeah, for wild so turkeys in so over in the like state.
1: the eastern third of the state, at least, is like pretty limited turkey habitat. I mean, what he's saying is just along the rivers and stuff. There's there's places for them. Um, okay, I wanna I wanna ask you, I wanna ask you about three things. I wanna talk about burning mm-hmm. big national forests and specifically the timing of it. I wanna talk to you about bag limits, mm-hmm. and I wanna talk to you about just kind of like your personal opinion of what's, what's going on. Because I think there's a lot. Of, so I, I'm declaring that so all y'all can help me stay on track, okay? Oh, we'll help you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so, man, I understand, like anybody that's paying attention to wild turkey management has heard this statement and c- can grab onto it pretty easily, is that burning helps turkeys more than it helps them. Yeah, maybe a fire would burn up a nest. It's possible but turkeys can have another nest in the same spring. I'm just giving you the simple version. But what happens when you burn is that's one spring, and then the habitat is improved so much the next however many years that anything you lost during that one spring is gained so much more in previous years. Because, Misty Newcomb, everybody where I grew up, everybody, this week I heard it from a guy, he said, "Man, we used to have turkeys in the national forest. Boys started burning all the timber in in April, burning up the turkey nests." That actually sounds like his accent too. Um, <laughs> and uh, and it, I didn't even I mean I didn't even want to get into it with him. But that was that guy. And then I heard another guy who I deeply respect, who has a wildlife biology degree, who gave a little rant the other day, and he uh, he said, "I know all the benefits of burns." like you don't have to tell me about the benefits of burns and how it helps turkey habitat. But he says we're burning so late that we're inevitably burning up nests and inevitably putting birds at, in a vulnerable place by having them to lay eggs again and make a second clutch. And basically he was like, yeah, I've heard all that stuff about good habitat, but we're still burning up nests and really compromising the uh, hen's ability to nest. Do you understand what I'm talking about, Misty?
3: I do. I'm, what I don't understand is why I'm the fall guy for the person who doesn't know much about turkeys in this particular podcast. these guys
1: are turkey experts. I, yeah, I'm looking right. at Josh and I, and I'm saying. Yeah, right. No, no, I just <laughs> I just want to make sure you're following. So
5: do you understand what I'm saying? So yeah. what's the truth, man? So, I mean, you know, no two fires are created equal. That You know, yeah. that, that's the reality. And, you know, a lot of people, they, they look at the National Forest and, you know, what's going on there. And, you know, you got to remember that that's only a – tiny segment of this entire state so the idea that you know we're burning up all the nests and that's what's causing population declines in this entire state you know is probably a little bit nearsighted i mean there's there's 90 gotcha. okay, more so of the let state me, let is, me
1: stop you right there before you even get going <clears throat> because that's a good point it's like it's not just on national forests that turkeys are scrambling
5: yep Yep, exactly. So that's kind of
1: your point. It's like, well, then it must not be the
5: fire. Yeah, not necessarily. I mean, there there still is, you know, obviously issues. You know, most of the research that's out there these days suggests that there is really minimal loss due to fire. It's not saying that there's not potentially loss happening, but, you know, it in the grand scheme of things with all the other factors that are out there, it's, it's relatively small fish. You know, and, and most people, you know, I, I put this out in a lot of the presentations that I do. You know you walk up on a turkey nest that's in one of those burns you see it you know it's it's either got a bunch of crushed eggs or it's got a bunch of whole eggs you don't know the whole story beyond what what's actually happened there so you know i look back to my master's degree and we were looking specifically at these burns specifically this time of year granted these are a lot smaller scale than what we're talking about here you know on the national forest that may be thousands of acres but you'd walk up on a nest and you say okay well that that burn, but well now I know that this one's had a GPS transmitter on it. I can go back and I can look and see see what happened and realize you know she abandoned the nest two days before this fire ever showed up. Nothing had taken those eggs. You walk in there, you know it's been burned. The eggs are clearly visible. You assume you know if you don't have that information that 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 nest was was burned up. And so that that kind of further negates a, some of those. It's a issues.
1: simple story to say that. The fires, is
5: what? what did it? But but you don't know that whole backstory, okay. and and so there there's more things that go into it. Why than just wouldn't that. they just not burn in April? Yeah, you know, the reality, you know, here national forest land. I mean, you have so many thousands of acres, that are millions of acres that you're attempting to manage for, and they're managing for for multiple uses. It's not just turkey populations. I wish, you know, as a as a turkey biologist, that we could manage every you know acre in the state for wild turkeys, but that's you know not the reality. No, there right. they're they're burning for you know, fuels mitigation, you know, to reduce the risk of catastrophic wildfires, all of these different things. And you've got to kind of get those burns have in when you Have there been catastrophic
2: can. wildfires in Arkansas?
5: I'm sure there have been at some point. I know in recent years, you know, you look oh, east of us in Tennessee, you know, you had those big fires right. that occurred, I think it was around Gatlinburg yeah. and, yeah, and I mean, in that area. Yeah. You know I mean, so there is the potential in the east, particularly with some of the fuel loads we have. You think about how overstocked a lot of our timber is these days and the, the fuel loads that are in there because they haven't burned i mean historically a lot of arkansas would have been kind of woodland savanna type habitats particularly in your your uplands you know the top of these hills and stuff like that that you know fires would have moved through frequently and it would reduce some of that naturally but now we have so much you know overstocked timber a lot of just dead decaying fuel because we spent. A, years and years and years trying to keep those fires at bay you know if we did have a wildfire pop up you try to you know knock it out stomp it out as quick as you could so it didn't burn a lot of acres in reality right. that probably would have been would've been yeah. better if you could have just let it let it kinda so, burn.
1: so that time period is just kind of when they can burn yeah it's the, it's the best time period for burning there so so what you're saying is if we were managing solely for wild turkeys we wouldn't burn during that time
5: yeah not necessarily i mean and, and i tell managers this all the time you know when we look at game fish owned properties in particular you know you've got to look holistically at what, what you're talking about what the habitat's telling you um you know ideally you know we burn in the dormant season you know and this is you know a little bit arbitrary but you know january into mid-march or something like that try to finish it up and then You know, now we're starting to shift what we consider growing season fires, which could be anywhere from mid to late March, early April, all the way in through, you know, October, November. You know, while those trees are still actively sending nutrients up and down, we can still get a lot of the same benefits of burning, you know, April and May. If the conditions were, were there, we can get those same benefits burning, you know, August, September, October if we can get those same weather variables in line so we can run the fire at that point so generally we we try to avoid that nesting season as an agency but you know if if it comes up if you know you've got a stand that's you know towards the end of its rotation it needs to be burned you know and and we're talking about it's already missed you know one window and you're saying well you know, it's turkey season, you know, we we can't burn. If if you keep doing that, you know, you'd never get anything accomplished because you, you have so, so many different seasons you're, throughout you're the pro year. you're pro-burn. I, I am, I am. Yeah. You know, I tell folks all the time, you know, if, if the conditions allow, you know, and you've got the burn weather because, you know, not every day is is equal when it comes to yeah, the just, weather for burning. Yeah, you you've got to have certain, gotta do it. certain variables all have to line up. So if you hit one of those days, you better take advantage of it because the idea that if you don't burn that, and then, you know, you hit later in the fall, you may not be able to burn it then. And now we're talking a year, two years post when you could have burned. And now we're, we're outside of the usable space, you know, for a turkey. Now it's so thick that they don't want to touch it. And it may end up costing you a lot more money to go in there with herbicide or, uh, you know, bringing in something to masticate, you know, mulch that that timber to get it back to a point where you could roll a fire through it. And that's going to be a lot more expensive. And it may take years in the budget to be able to afford to do that and have it, have it set aside. So, you know, all of a sudden you went from having something that, yeah, you may have lost one nest this year, but now you've, in, instead of burning it, now you have no nests in it for the next handful of oh, years. Yeah. Yeah. Or the that predation rate yeah. on those ones is so much higher yeah. that by getting it done, you lose that nest, yeah, this year, but hopefully you've benefited all the ones the around you're not burning the same
1: it. block of woods every single year. Right. I mean, right. there so that's the other thing to think about. It's like, yeah, maybe the south side of that mountain – this year gets burned so yeah maybe maybe a turkey loses her nest and maybe she's unsuccessful nesting later worst case scenario but they're not going to burn it for another how many years what's the cycle on some of those you know
5: depending here you know it could be two to three years down in a lot of particular like the gulf coastal Plain and and maybe in some of the Washtaws and the pine blue stem you know you get up here in the ozarks you're probably talking three four or five years you so can spread out a little bit further four
1: years of greatly improved habitat for them to have great potential nesting with no fires at all. Right. So, yeah. Okay. And
3: since I'm the fall guy for people who, who, who are unaware. Of, I have a fire uh,
1: extinguisher here if you need it. All right.
3: So well, I guess how long does it take for a turkey to settle into a place? Like is four years enough time for a turkey to say, Oh, I like that. I'm going to oh, lay- yeah. That is help. What is? It's
5: almost immediate. I mean, those really? birds. I mean, if yeah. they typically their home range isn't probably going to get changed all that much of okay. a fire. They're just you know. going to move out. They'll move out, but um, honestly, that they, they move right back in. I mean, a lot of the research that Mike and a lot of other folks have done in the southeast in recent years, I mean, those birds are moving back in there. You, I think it's something like 50% of the birds that we've had, marked move back into a burned area within 48 hours. Oh, wow. And by, wow. you know, the end of a week, eat, like, it's like 90%. <laughs> surprised, <laughs> I'm surprised you didn't know that. Do
3: yeah. <laughs> 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 other states, and I know we can't compare, it's not apples to apples. I'm just curious mainly because I'd like to figure out the turkey situation because it is the end really of April. Really stressful to Misty. <laughs> it is. It's the end of April, and we don't mm-hmm. have a turkey in the Newcoms. Misty free.
1: wakes up all during turkey season and is like, are you going to go kill a turkey today? <laughs> and I usually say no, and it really bothers her.
2: It does Is that why me. I'm having to provide your family with rainbow trout? It's, yeah. true. <laughs> yeah. it's
3: true. In lieu of turkeys. It's true. It's true. Do other states, are other states seeing a decline like we are?
5: For sure, for sure.
3: And are they burning?
5: Yes. Yes, yeah, so, I okay. mean a lot of a lot of those states. By the you know- end of this,
1: Misty's going to have it all figured out, and she's going to tell us like something that Mike Chamberlain and Jeremy yeah. never thought of. She's going to be like, "Well, why don't you just... Mm, we don't even know what that X is." Yeah, yeah. Didn't you listen to the podcast with Mike Chamberlain? You didn't, did you?
3: That was two podcasts Taught ago, you. wasn't it?
1: You weren't on the render. Yeah, yeah. So we talked all about the southeast decline of Turkey. Isaac,
3: take that out. <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, um, okay, Th- that's great. Burns got it. Got it. Yeah, my so that's good. Number two. Bag limits. Bag limits. Is it just a social issue that we don't just say one turkey?
3: By social, you mean like political? I mean, is it? Like it, it seems people like, will rebel? Yes. People will revolt?
5: I, I think there's a lot of people that, that look at bag limits like they're the the end-all, be-all. Like if, if we, we do this, you know, here in Arkansas, we've got a relatively conservative bag limit already. We have, you know, it's a two-turkey bag limit in the state got other states in the southeast that have made some changes recently but a lot of them have had three four even five yeah you know, turkey Alabama bag five turkeys yeah wow. oh. until recently Sheesh. i think just in Sorry, the last Misty. i think just this year they moved from five down to four um but it's still you know relatively high number and you know when you start getting up three four five birds in your bag limit you know you can have potentially a disproportionate amount of your harvest come come from those folks that are harvesting much more than two but you know here in arkansas we've had you know two bird bag limits for for many years even three you know going back into the 70s 80s 90s yep. early 90s yep. you know around there in portions of the state um particularly like along the mississippi river some areas in the washita's and you know the reality is you know that was all occurring while populations were, were rebounding you know being actively stocked so we had a higher bag limit earlier when there were a lot less turkey hunters on the landscape but when those turkeys were you know just basically be becoming kind of whole you know coming back around um you know i look at it now 90 percent of our harvest in arkansas comes from folks filling just that first tag okay that's so. a
1: great okay that's that's the kind of reasoning i needed to hear mm-hmm. yeah, that makes sense so it's like not a ton of people are killing two turkeys
5: yeah not not at all i mean in general i mean we're talking with the recent years where our harvest has been in the seven eight thousand kind of range we're looking at. 700 800 turkeys you know out of the entire harvest being somebody's second bird Really? and you know there's been interesting yeah there's there's been times in the past you know in the 90s particularly the washita's i looked at this just recently because we we do have a a proposal out there right now to, to move to a one bird limit it wasn't something that the turkey program put out there but it was something that came from some public comment and the agency decided to put it out for public comment during a recent reg survey so what i did was i looked back at these seven or so counties in the in the Washita's where they went from a three-bird bag limit to a two-bird bag limit to a one-bird bag limit and then back to a two-bird bag limit, which, which we have still through today. And what you see is, you know, populations were declining a bit. You know, reproduction had been kind of poor in general terms. I mean, you look back now, you know, the reproduction compared to, to now, to back then, it was, yeah, pretty good. But, you know, it was declining. You saw harvest decline. So they instituted a two-bird bag limit population continued to decline or the harvest continued to decline but you moved to a one bird bag limit and there really wasn't any difference between those two year two bird limit years and that one bird limit year because again there's there's not that many more birds getting sh- shot because somebody's okay. killing a second one and in most cases you're probably just seeing other people fill that tag you know if you were restricted to one you didn't get to go but you know you took gonna, your son out you, you took your wife out you know, yeah okay man and, that's and, yeah and, uh,
1: that's a great
5: that's a great that's a great analogy. Now. I can
1: see if you had a 5 bird bag limit and guys really had some, you know, their spots dialed in and had the time and were really good turkey hunters like you could really hurt something but with a 2 bird I see how that the possibilities are less for for hurt and man I like that. Uh I don't know, you know, I put on that survey that I would be fine with a 1 bird bag limit like I just wouldn't be a problem. Mm-hmm. Just thinking, you know, we got to sacrifice some for the resource but I'm one of those guys that, I mean, to be honest with you, it's been a long time since I've killed two turkeys in Arkansas. And so, you know, maybe to me that's not a big deal. Yeah.
5: uh, I mean, you think about the the opportunity that's lost at that point. You go from two to one, you know. Like, for me, I was I was successful this year. When I opened the day, I was lucky enough I got a bird. I was so, fish, guys. Yeah, yeah. They uh, go. uh, got, got him on a
1: string.
2: Yeah. yeah, I had one tied
5: up there for me so I could get it and make sure I got a bird this year. Probably had a
1: live hen decoy.
5: But, but I mean, now, you know, obviously we, we've, we've kind of limited that harvest in the front end of the season. So when we consider, you know, some of that harvest could be more impactful to, to that breeding chronology, we, we tried to limit that, push some of that back a little bit to later in the season when it may be less impactful so you know I've got that bird I'm out of the woods for seven yeah, days so there's a
1: new there's a new regulation misty
5: where <laughs> if you kill a turkey you can't kill another one if you kill one the first week mm-hmm. anytime within the first seven days you can't go until basically the eighth day of the season so yeah, this so morning if, right? if I had
1: killed one on the first day which I wasn't even in the country I couldn't have hunted until later in the week because that that kind of takes away a little bit of the opportunity for a second bird. Mm-hmm. But it's you could take somebody else hunting. Like if I yep. had some birds dialed in, I mean, that second day I could have taken my son or taken yeah. mm-hmm. Colby.
3: Or or me or, or Josh. Josh.
1: <laughs> or Misty.
3: Josh is just sitting over there.
2: You can't go turkey hunting. You don't have a mustache. Yeah. I
3: have a stick on.
1: Breaks up your outline. <laughs> Turkeys recognize human faces. That's right. That's if right. If you have a big line across it's your face, natural camo, man. They natural can't. camo. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't work. I don't have to put much, you know, That's extra right. um, covering on the face. Okay, so that 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 clears it up with me on on bag limits. Um,
3: it's like a the whole thing is sort of like all the problems in life right now. We assume the simplest. You know, you, you want to make it a really simple. It's because of this. But in reality, everything's a lot more complex. Well,
1: it's, a, it's a, you know, like Chamberlain said, like everybody said, it's death by a thousand cuts. And mm-hmm. and like I always go back to, can't trust a ground nesting bird because they're they're going to create problems for you. There's just so many reasons why ground nesting birds have trouble, but also can do really great. But okay, let me ask you this, and this is uh, like, why are our turkeys declining? Like, okay, off the record, I'm gonna I'm gonna turn this off, okay. <laughs> Wink, wink. Why? What do you? What's? What is? I mean, we already know everything that like everybody said. You know, it's it's just like death by a thousand cuts. It's can be bag limits. It can be predation. It's the the forest regime. You know, I don't know why, why is
2: but what's
5: the
1: real reason? Yeah. What's the, <laughs> r- what are you hiding from us, Jerry?
5: <laughs> I, I wish it was as easy as just pulling something out of the bag of tricks and saying, yeah, th- this is it. You know, that, that smoking gun, that silver bullet that would fix everything. I mean, I, I think there's a lot of stuff that's going into what's, what's gone on here in the state in Arkansas. Um, you know coming in from that outside perspective not being from here you know I'm thankful that I I didn't experience turkey populations in the early 2000s you know I was alive but I wasn't hunting turkeys at that point I wasn't hunting turkeys in the south in particular so you know I started hunting turkeys in my mid-20s 23 24 somewhere in that ballpark and I've never had a bad turkey hunt. and I've never had a bad turkey season since I started hunting. I hunt mostly public land, but I, I never had that experience. You know, I hear from most folks that I used to go out to this spot and I'd hear 12 birds gobble yeah. on the ridge. I've never had that. I mean, I've had some spots where I've heard three, four, five, something like that, but that's still all in these recent years. And, you know, I kill some, I don't kill some in other chances, but I, I've heard birds gobbling. It's, it's great experience. But if some of it, you're dealing with that expectation that, you know, you've got folks that that started turkey hunting right there when things were were perfect. Those populations were at their highest point, but it may not have been, you know, sustainable. That may not have been the reality. And particularly what I look at here in the state is, you know, thinking about the number of turkey hunters that were, were on the landscape. You know, you think about, you know, if you were around, you were hunting in the eighties, maybe even the early nineties, you know, a lot of folks that I talked to, they could count on one hand, the number of other turkey hunters. They even knew, you know, they were hunting in the area that they hunted and, you know, you get into the late 90s, you know, you were talking with Will in the previous podcast and, and thinking about the truth and, you know, all of that kind of blowing up and people just eating all that information up. Yeah, kind of up.
1: explosion of turkey hunting knowledge and, mm-hmm. and people wanting to become turkey hunters.
5: Yeah, it's kind of like what they talk about in the waterfowl world, like this duck dynasty bump, you know, in, in hunter yeah. numbers, and I, I think we saw that at that time when things were peaking. And then, you know, when you look back in time, you know, I think Mike brought this up where – you know, it was kind of right there under our fingers, but we didn't really recognize what was happening at the time because a couple of bad years in a row wasn't wasn't that big of a deal in the grand scheme of things at that time. But now, 20 years later, you know, we can look back and see how long that actually, you know, continued to occur and reproduction kept declining. And, you know, here in the state, you know, you saw the agency look at how good populations were doing, look at the interest. They started adding more days to the season. So you went from, you know, The mid '80s through the early 2000s, you were looking. I think we had about 23, 24 day long season, about what we're at now with the youth hunt. And all of a sudden, you started going up into 30, 35 days, 39 days by 2003, 2004. And that's an incredible amount of of pressure to put on that that population in a a short period of time. So there's a lot of birds, but there's a lot more turkey hunters coming into the fold at that time. So people were really being successful. And but I think what we did was we overshot you know at that period of time it's not likely that you know i think we we look out there and we say okay you know harvest is estimated at roughly 10% of your population and so you extrapolate out from that number what you anticipate your population was and we would have said okay we were nearly 200,000 turkeys back around that time but if we were overharvesting them at that period of time it's it's unlikely that we were ever truly that that high of a population we had a better population than we do now but it's hard to go back and look at that and then compare it to now and say, okay, did we drop 60 to 65 percent? You know, like a lot of people say when you're just looking at those harvest numbers, because you know, you're, you're looking at the harvest number and that's one static number, but you're not looking at all the things that go, go into that. So you're not looking at those season length fluctuations. You're not looking at bag limits like, you know, Arkansas, Mississippi are the only two states out there that restrict Jake harvest. Prior to 2000, nearly 40% of our harvest was made up of jakes here in the wow. state. Wow. Um, it's credible numbers. Mm-hmm. And then you get from 2000 to 2010, we restricted that to one jake for every hunter. That dropped that percentage from 40 down to about 25%. And then in 2011, we instituted the no jake rule. So only youth hunters had that exception they could kill one jake. That's dropped that number even further. Now we're down to 4% of our harvest each year is made up of jakes. It's been that way for 10 years. It has now. So the yeah.
1: no jake policy has been successful in at least protecting jakes. In
5: at least protecting jakes. Well, the unfortunate reality is we don't know early on what those survival rates look like. We recently finished up some research here in the last few years that looked at the impact of that regulation we're looking at survival of adult and juvenile males and we're seeing about 90 percent survival of those jakes you know very few if any were actually even shot during the season most of them were just dying of natural mortality which isn't much you know they have pretty good survival you know in the absence of hunting pressure right once they get about four weeks old or so I mean you get past that first month and you know they're fairly golden but what we're seeing now is that, you know, our two-year-olds and stuff were, we're hammering about 30% survival um, once they hit oh, year wow. two. So assume- now that
1: we took the pressure off the jakes it's all going to the two-year-olds the
5: two-year-olds and then then you start getting the three four plus year old mm-hmm. birds and you jump back up about 50 percent and you think about it those birds are they've been through the game a time or two at that point they're the smarter ones out there they you know they don't just come running into your calling like you know a two-year-old would do you know they're hard gobbling you know the, the the hunts that you get really really excited about and because because they just come in that they, they act the way you know most people think that the birds should right. and but what we don't know is back prior you know back when we could kill two of those birds you know what those survival rates look like you know mm-hmm. did we instead of 90% survival of Jake did we see 60 70% survival of Jake but what about those two year olds that that then increase that two year old survival cuz somebody somebody shot a Jake and they couldn't kill another one today so the long beard that may have been in there with them you know survived another day or maybe the season and so maybe their survival actually went up a little bit, and you know, is that biologically significant to see see those fluctuations? But but we don't know what those those numbers were like, so it's mm-hmm. hard to say. It's in the one hand that that regulation has has worked; it's generated the the idea that we're seeing more of those jakes survive that first year, but we don't know you know how it truly compares to what our earlier regulations were like, and whether or not that that's a problem or not. So, do you think that uh are we ever going to
1: get our turkeys back? I mean, like, so if this is part of a cycle and also part of, you know, part of it is just there's not as many places for turkeys to be, but that doesn't fully make sense for like, like if you just took national forest, like we have the same amount of national forest and there's some interior sections of national forest that probably aren't really affected by the encroachment of civilization. I'm kind of thinking about this idea that, habitat is being lost but in a lot of places habitat
5: necessarily wouldn't be lost it's not being lost you know outright you know like there's still forested landscape but the condition of that forested landscape is is different than potentially it has been in years past it's not as as desirable from a a turkey standpoint you know we were talking about overstock timber i mean just driving up i was driving the pig trail you know on my way way Uh up here and you know, you're, you're driving through the national forest through there, and there's some spots here, or there that look a little more woodland type condition. You can see a little bit of understory, but most of the area you're driving through there, whether it's pine, hardwood, you're looking at a lot of leaf litter, a lot of pine straw, very little understory vegetation. So you know, a turkey can still nest in there, but there's not really, it's not quality nesting habitat. It's still going to be a little more vulnerable to to predators it's easier for them to see here potentially but then on top of that there's there's not really good brooder in habitat there's not that that low growing lush green vegetation that's you know just low enough off the ground that it can hide a pole the hen can see over it and there's lots of insects there's not a lot of that out there and you know you see that across the but, a lot but, of and the we forms. had
1: that 20 years ago
5: i'm guessing you know i mean that's me not being here in the state but i think 20 30 40 years ago you, you saw a different management you know in some of those areas you know, I, I look nowadays at, at how a lot of agencies operate, and we, we've seen a lot of reductions in, in field staff and things like that, where, you know, even particular here, you look at a lot of our national forest lands. We've got a lot of conglomerates of ranger districts, you know, in areas that used to have um, three separate ranger districts with three separate staff that all had, you know, responsibilities for a much smaller acres. Now you've got all of those in one single district, with about a third of the staff that they once had and they're, but now they're responsible for three times the acreage that Uh, they used to be. And, you know, I think that all starts putting challenges on things.
1: That's, that's part of it that I just don't understand is like, how is the habitat so much different now than it was at the peak, you know, of Turkey populations that then, and I'm not, I mean, I I think you answered it is that there's just a thousand different things. I mean, the forests are 20 years older. Mm -hmm. There's uh, there is differences in management of stuff.
5: And it may not be that significant from, from that time period, but you, you think we were kind of leading up to it. So a lot of the stuff that produced the birds that were on the landscape 20 years ago would have been just a few more years before that. So, okay. you know, over time, you so know, that's, you're, that you got to be good. talking
1: about a 40 or 50 year time span because yeah, maybe what happened 40 years ago produced the birds that we had 20 years ago, but then that faded away. Misty, have you figured this out yet?
3: Well, I do have a question. (laughs) I know I'm a little bit more familiar with bear and and how that's studied by the game and fish. And they go in and they like they can tell you how many how many babies they're having. Do y'all have do you met is there any way that you can figure out if turkeys are laying more eggs or less eggs?
5: So, I mean, not specifically the number of eggs. We, we, occasionally we do research projects, and they have over time. You know, back in the 90s and in the early to mid-20-teens, you know, we had some other research going on where they actually went out, caught birds, put transmitters on them, followed them around, and you know, they track the nesting um, effort. And so they go to nest, whether they're successful or not. They mm-hmm. can count the eggs, get all that information. To my knowledge, the, the number of eggs, things like that, hasn't changed I'm sure the hatch rate hasn't really changed all that much. I think we're still seeing of, of the ones that are successful, you know, the, the number of eggs that hatch is usually relatively high. But what we do do, you know, on a regular basis, and it's been going on since the early 80s, is we do a, a population survey, or, or a lot of folks call it a brood survey. So that's historically from the 80s until just a few years ago when I came on board. That was completed by agency personnel, law enforcement officers within the agency, and um, U.S. Forest Service personnel, other you know agency partners, um, Fish and Wildlife Service, folks like that. And what they do is during the summer months, June through August, they'd record all of the turkeys that they saw. It didn't matter if it was just a group of gobblers, it was a hen with a group of poults, a few hens all together alone. And what we do is we compile all that information, and we calculate out what's known as a poulper hen ratio. And so we look at the number of poults that are observed, Versus the number of adult females that are observed, and we get that ratio, and you're able to look at the the reproductive rate. So basically, it's just pe- people's observations. So turkeys are pretty hard to
1: to gauge in terms of yeah study like that. You probably would have known that if you listened to the to Mike Chamberlain. Isaac. So we talked <laughs> extensively about this. Cut that out, Isaac. <laughs> 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 no, it's uh Can you imagine if the uh, game of fish did a uh, turkey pole uh, trip like they do with the bears. Mm-hmm. You remember the pictures of everybody yeah. holding yeah. little <laughs> bears? Yeah. yeah. What if we did? We were with little Jeremy. Chicks. see Jeremy smiling just this big, cheeky grin. Yeah. Holding a little turkey eggs. <laughs> yeah. Little photos. That's
5: probably what y'all should do. Yeah. I think um, it would help i don't know about that i I get real worried when you start bumping hens off in nests and doing stuff like that tranquilize man (laughs) just like the bears sneak up on it
1: tranquilize the hen you hold the hen up by the leg maybe we should
3: bring the rocket nets back
1: rocket nets yeah okay so is this just like are we just always going to have turkey numbers like we do right now or do you think we're at a low a low point and we're probably going to bounce back up just a little bit I,
5: and kind of equalize that like, right answer here what's yeah. your yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> i think we have been at a low point i mean you look back through time you know pr- just prior to my getting here 2015 to 2019 were the four of the five lowest reproductive years oh he, said, he yeah. said right before <laughs> he got here <laughs> oh yeah. i yeah. see we yeah. didn't <laughs> start <laughs> 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 <laughs>
3: jeremy we're
1: we
4: Who was just the <laughs> previous pile? yeah yeah man just <laughs> threw <laughs> under
5: the bus <laughs> 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 but I mean a lot of this is you know just obviously you know something that's out of our control a lot of times weather and things like sure. that are, are impacting those right. a lot more than than everything else I mean obviously habitat all those influence too but the overarching weather patterns have been pretty poor the, that, that yeah, period of time springs above, have just above been average wet wet cold so I mean you know polts, you know in that first couple of weeks of life they can't thermoregulate so if they're getting their cold they're getting wet they're dying of hypothermia things like that and you're losing a ton of birds really really quick whereas when you get to some drier spring weather like we've actually had the last couple years I was a little worried in the last couple that you know it was too wet at the wrong time but it must have hit just right within a lot of our hatching because we've had a decent hatch in 2020 and 2021 and so what I look at is that our populations are probably coming up a little bit we've kind of hit that low point you know, 2020 didn't help things because, you know, everybody was off work. So we kind of hammered them in, in yep. that year. We we had a higher harvest, but that was probably inflated. You know, we probably mm-hmm. should have been going down that year, but we spiked up. So then last year we ended up dropping, you know, pretty good amount with our harvest. Cause we probably overshot what kind of surplus we had from the year before, which wouldn't have been a whole heck of a lot of birds. Whereas now, you know, we went from those four to five poor years, had a good year. You know, they suggest in a, in a good year of reproduction, you can about double your population. You know, you think about wow. two two poults per hen, you know, she's replacing herself and another so bird. So you
1: could be just a couple of years away from numbers being pretty high.
5: Yeah, it really doesn't take much. I mean, the, a lot of the, the old literature talks about populations, you know, fluctuating upwards of 50%, you know, above and below the long term, you know, kind of average because you have those years See, where you miss a hatch. I've never thought about
1: that. When you have an animal that has the potential to have like... Seven or eight, you know, maybe say, you know, hen, real successful hen might raise a whole clutch of pullets, mm-hmm. and you've just like doubled your population immediately. I like the, I like the hope inside of that. Mm-hmm. I Think I'm going to be a turkey biologist now. <laughs> See, like bear populations, man, you want to spike up a bear population?s Get ready to sit there and twiddle your thumbs mm-hmm. for about twenty years, because a bear <laughs> doesn't reach sexual maturity till it's about four years old, only has. Cubs every other year. Mm-hmm. Jeremy's in the right business, yeah. Because mm-hmm. you could double your population right place, right time. Jeremy, yep. <laughs> right place, right time. Jeremy, yep. Yeah, I mean, and I we're like counting I on you to double <laughs> yeah. our turkey population. You, uh, we're this. It's all on you, I'm, man. <laughs> I'm wanting the five bird bag limit. <laughs> isn't, isn't that funny? How it's like? Jeremy's here. He's he's in charge of it, and we're like, saw <laughs> yeah. <all> you, man. <laughs> Make turkey hunting great again. Man. When did Do it you feel? Do you feel the pressure? I mean, like really, is there is there social pressure on you about turkeys? Oh, like, for- we're we're giving you a hard time here. We realize you're just doing your job. Yeah,
5: no, I mean for sure. I mean, you know, I, I get constant contacts from folks all the time about have you thought about doing this? Have you thought about doing that? We need to do what this state's doing, that state's doing. And, you know, I take a lot of this stuff personally, and especially when I start hearing stuff, you know, about me or what we're doing, you know, all we're thinking about <laughs> you, is the, the is it hard not to take it personally? It, it's hard not to. I mean, I, I'm passionate about turkeys. Yeah. You know, I just, me and my wife just had a little boy back in the fall. And, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, him six, seven years down the road, yeah. when he's able to hunt, you know, I, I'm trying to manage for him and, and everybody else's kids that are out there you know thinking about the future and not necessarily thinking about you know today and just tomorrow you know what what we're hunting you know we've got to think about what what do we need to do now that we can set you know the future up for for success and you know that may take some some reduction in in what we're able to do now for that long-term benefit and so I, I'm been pretty happy and pretty excited that our agency is, has been willing to, you know, take that kind of leap of faith at this point in time and and move in that direction and kind of try to put the resource first foremost still trying to maintain you know some some quality opportunity there for for folks so you still have that to, you know go out and experience and, and participate in, in turkey hunting but that hopefully that sets us up for success you know here down the line to where we get to a point where we can maintain some sort of you know kind of stable regulations we don't i don't think we want to get to a point where we're we're chasing populations you know, like things are great you know now let's let's keep just like dialing up the pressure now we're going to add bag limits we're going to add time like i i think what you need to do is maintain those consistent regulations be be a little bit conservative to make up for those potential poor years that you have down the road and it balances out you know you'll have some good years you'll have some bad years but that way you don't have some really 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 bad years and you're you know you're trying to pull yourself up yeah. out of a hole so what do we what do you what would you
1: say the major like one or two things that you guys are doing right now that is going to help us get a handle on it
5: so from the, from the regulatory standpoint, you know, obviously, you know, that's one of the major things that we can control. So, you know, pushing the season back to where we did right in around April 19th, and that's going to vary based on calendar creep because we put it as the, the third Monday in April okay. um, to limit some of that that early pressure because, you know, you set it up on a Saturday, everybody can go. Yeah. You end up having a lot more issues, safety issues, hunter interference issues, you know, it's greater conflict. So we, we keep it on a Monday to kind of spread some of that pressure out throughout the week so it's not all just a free-for-all. on the the opening day because then then a lot of folks just aren't happy with that. And we've had a lot of, you know, complaints over the years when they they did that and and moving it back to Monday. But by pushing us back to that kind of April 19th time frame, we're allowing more of those hens to be bred. Most of the information I had to work with, with some of our research projects, with those uh, population surveys, we could actually – You know, we take age estimates on the pulse, so we can backdate how old we anticipate those. And I usually go pretty conservative. You know, if somebody says they're two weeks old, okay, I'm saying they're 14 days. You know, at that point, I go back from that 14 days. That's when they hatched. I can go back 26, 28 days. I usually go 28, just go on the far, far side of things when they're hatching to say, okay, this is when they first started incubating that nest and then go back even further to when they started laying that about 14 days before that. So that that's what we're talking about in that April nineteenth time frame is that's the peak nest initiation or egg laying time period in the state. So there's a bunch really? of birds.
1: So most of the breeding's <clears throat> being done in
5: March. Some of the breeding's being done in March. Most of it's probably ramping up right there in the middle of April. You know, typically some of the old research and this is looking at captive birds, but basically suggests that you know those birds are getting bred and going to lay that that start that laying process probably within forty eight to seventy two hours of of when they were bred. So, and it's not to say that some of those hens aren't getting bred early. I mean, we, I get reports every year, you know, here's trail camera picture, and there's a bird, you know, breeding a hen 1st of March, 7th mm-hmm. of March, something like that. Well, that's, that's all occurring, and some of those birds aren't ready to actually lay that nest, so they continue to, to breed with more toms right up until the time that they're, they're ready to, to start that process. And most of that occurs right around now, this previous week or so. And so, you know, where we had had seasons timed about the 10th or so of April, that fell right within probably that peak breeding period in the state. So that's when most of those toms didn't have to gobble as much. You know, they're sitting up there on the limb. They might gobble a few times, but a lot of those hens are are right there roosted around them because they're going to come down, they're going to breed with them early, and then they're going to move off and potentially start that that laying sequence pretty shortly thereafter. And and so that obviously reduces, you know, a lot of the... um, satisfaction with with hunting, you know, goblins going down, you're not hearing as much. You know, this week, you know, this first week here of the season wasn't the best, but you know, some of that's been influenced probably more by weather. Um spring green up this year was actually probably a little bit delayed from what yeah, has little, been. Sure. Um so you know, we may actually be hitting more of that kind of low period right now and some of that may really start to ramp up here in the latter, you know, two thirds of the season over the next few days.
1: Mm. What so what if you had a message for people about turkey hunting, what would you say? Like, just in terms of you being a part of the agency, like, what would you ask of people?
5: I, I would ask, ask folks to have, have some patience. I mean, obviously, we, we didn't get to the point that we're at right now overnight and we're not going to change that overnight. Um, you know, wait a I,
1: minute. I thought you were going to double the turkey puppy. <laughs> Did you say that? Didn't he say that in two weeks? That's I what I he understand. said in one year he could double the turkey puppy. <laughs> I,
5: I wish it worked that way. I wish it was that easy. But uh, my hope is, yeah. That. <laughs> <laughs> my hope is that you know, over time here, that we can hit some of those those good springs. Like we've had two pretty good hatches. If we get another really good hatch. This year, I mean, you think about it, you might have doubled your population two years ago, but you are at a real low point. So then last year, you know, if we about doubled it again, you know, now we're even better and we're really starting to see it. Well, now if we get a third year back to back to back, now we really see it, you know, Mm. in these future years, because you're going to have a lot more young birds running around and then maybe potentially your, your goblin activity is going to increase, but, but the likelihood is we'll have a poor year. You know, there, there's no guarantee that we're going to get that back to back to back because we just don't know what that weather is going to do. So I would just say to have patience, you know, t- take, take some time, you know, maybe kind of recalibrate those expectations. Don't, don't look back to the early 2000s and say, okay, we killed 20,000 birds. Yeah, we need Misty. to kill kill 20,000 again because it's it's unlikely that we're ever going to see our harvest numbers get that high again because of the new regulations that we have in place. You know, everything that's changed from back then to now, it's not going to allow those numbers to quite get to that point. You know, I I look back to when we had a later season, just a handful of years ago, 2012 to 16 time period. We killed about ten to eleven thousand or so birds in the state. That was we were one of the states at that time we actually saw we had declined a whole bunch and then we started coming up. We actually made this this increase during those years, which is kind of out of the norm for a lot of the other states. Most people were either just kind of staying steady or, or still declining. And we saw this nice spike. We don't know if that was the regulations. We we know we had good reproduction on the, the front end of that twenty twelve and thirteen, but we didn't kind of follow through for it. Those, the remaining years, so we don't know, would we have just continued to go down, would we have leveled out, you know, anything about that, which is unfortunate. And the, the hope will be that, you know, we can keep the regulations we have in place now for some time to, to watch those, those trends and actually get trend data. Because, you know, going back, the last 30 40 years we've made so many regulation changes as an agency and it's actually you know a lot of folks look at you know what what has the agency done and they've actually done a lot compared to to a lot of other agencies we've made Mm -hmm. so many regs changes but it makes it impossible to you know determine any sort of trend data because of all those those different kind of interwoven regs changes that you know each one has its own different impact on on what that harvest is going to be so Mm -hmm. it makes trying to compare from one year to the next you know almost impossible um so hopefully we can kind of maintain some and see it out and then if we do need to make a change we make one change at a time and say okay how how is this this impacted and maybe study that and see okay we went to this we didn't see any change okay maybe we can return that and we move one of these other factors yeah. and you know hopefully in time we'll get to a point where we can actually say you know how many how many turkey hunters do we have in the state i, I don't know how many we have and you know some of our estimates I was gonna are,
2: ask, do we we don't have any idea how many
5: we don't we, we have some estimates based on some kind of deer and turkey hunter opinion surveys that were done in 14 16 and 18 that say okay maybe about 40 percent of our license holders hunt turkeys well depending on which number you use and the exact you know, license holders that, you know, that could be anywhere from 70 to 100 and something thousand turkey hunters in the state. So, you know, when I look at a year where we have, say, say we have 70,000, we last year we killed 7,000 turkeys. Well, okay. That says, okay, maybe you had about 10% 10 success, success. but you know, when I look at some of my counterparts talk to like Georgia, they they estimate they've got 50 to 60,000 turkey hunters. They're a much larger state than us. They've got more birds than us. I'd be kind of hard-pressed to expect we have more turkey hunters here in Arkansas than there. So, you know, say we have half as much. Say we have thirty-five, forty thousand 40,000 turkey hunters. Well, now all of a sudden your success rate's 20%, and that's actually maybe more in line with a lot of these other states throughout the country. Maybe that's more normal, and we're kind of in the the ballpark of where we should be, and, you know, Mm -hmm. you're just going to see those fluctuations depending on what that hatch looks like Mm. and it's going to be every other year because we don't harvest jakes so you don't see those trends you know wherever you see a spike in reproduction you don't see that spike in harvest you know come for two years instead of in a lot of states where since you're able to harvest jakes you know it it happens that following year you know so Mm. like if this summer you know you had a good year in a lot of states you'd see that spike in harvest next spring whereas here we'd see it you know two years later
1: yeah well fascinating stuff. Yeah, yeah. That's great. Well, man, thanks a ton for coming up here. Yeah. Really appreciate it. And uh we'll be we'll give you a couple more years, Jeremy. We'll be patient <laughs> with you. But uh, you know, by about two years from now, I need like five bird bag limit. No, and, man. And if I, you I need I bought... anything, let us know. We'll get Austin to get it for you. That's right.
2: Oh,
3: <laughs> Isaac cut that. That's right. That's right. That's right. No, no, leave it in there.
2: No man, we appreciate
1: what you're doing for real we we know it's not an easy chair to sit in and uh and golly man it's a it's a dynamic and complex system that's constantly changing i mean with the landscape and the human involvement and weather changing you know weather patterns are undoubtedly changing it's like such a complex system i mean all we can do is give it our best and, and i know i mean i have full faith you know there's some i mean i have a lot of faith in game agencies just doing the absolute best they can it's in their best interest i mean every state agency wants engagement from people they know to get that engagement they've got to have wildlife i mean we're all kind of on the same team in terms of these things and uh, these are the guys that are that have the data have the research are doing the best that we know how inside of the bounds of science and human relations to make all this stuff work so yeah yep We appreciate
2: the hard work and the, you know, considering the, the habitat, the wildlife, and the hunters, and I think you guys do a great
1: job balancing that out. Yeah, right on.
0: Hey, we're gonna take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me. Enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana. They're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose Interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today. This show is sponsored in part by BetterHelp. Around New Year's, we get obsessed with how to
1: change ourselves instead of just expanding on what we've already done right – Maybe you finally organized one part of your space and you want to tackle another, or maybe you're taking your supplements every morning and now you actually want to eat breakfast. In the last year, I've been more diligent about going to the gym on a regimented schedule, and it's made a lot of difference in my life. Therapy helps you find your strengths so that you can ditch the extreme resolutions and make changes that really stick. Therapy is helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself. It isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Celebrate the progress you've already made. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Grease today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Grease.